We're about to take you on a long, strange podcast. I'm your guest host, Tim Lynch, and joining me on this journey is founder and host of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, Christian Swain, as well as his colleague at the project, Peter Ferrioli. This podcast is a recap and discussion of each act, one through sixth, of the documentary Long Strange Trip, The Untold Story of the Grateful Dead. An Amazon Studios film, it was directed by Amir Barlev and executive produced by Martin Scorsese. Check out IMDb for the full list of producers. Over the course of six weeks, we've been hosting a roundtable discussion and interviews with special guests featured in Long Strange Trip, with Grateful Dead scholars and thought leaders, and of course with the undeducated, those who are learning about the Grateful Dead and being exposed to the scene for the first time through the Long Strange Trip documentary. Uh, this is Peter here, and today we have five male voices in the first part, so we're going to make sure that we let you all know who's speaking here first, and I want to give you our spoiler warning as we do every week. We assume you've watched the documentary. If you haven't, uh, we are going to get into the details, specifically a little bit about Act 5 and Deadheads, but with uh, our special dedicated guest today, we're going to get into the entire four-hour documentary and then in part two, Christian's going to be speaking one-on-one -on -one with our dedicated guest. So please pause the podcast, go watch a documentary now on Amazon, and come back and join us. Christian, who is this week's special dedicated guest? This week, joining us to discuss Act 5, Deadheads, and pretty much the entire Long Strange trip now that we're five episodes in, is a very special dedicated Grateful Dead publicist and historian Dennis McNally. Dennis began officially as the Grateful Dead's publicist in 1984 and has since worked with many different musicians and bands, record companies and promoters, including Zakir Hussein, Steve Kimmick, Little Feet, Bill Payne, Boris Garcia, Bob Weir, and Rat Dog, just to name a few. He published his third book on Highway 61, October of 2014, and we invite everyone to visit his website, DennisMcNally.com to see a sample and get further information. I'd like to note that uh, Highway 61 won the 2014 ASCAP Deems Taylor Virgil Thompson Award for music writing. His fourth book is Jerry on Jerry, published in November 2015. It's an edited transcript of interviews done with Jerry Garcia in the 1970s and 1980s and includes an introduction by Trixie Garcia. There's also an audio version, which consists of the actual tapes themselves. He's also the curator for the California Historical Society's Summer of Love 50th Anniversary Photo Show. Dennis, welcome to Long Strange Podcast. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a, indeed an honor to have you. Um, 
And it's really actually exciting also to have our next guest as our undeducated guest joining us. He's no stranger to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, where we featured him in a recent episode of Deeper Digs in Rock. It's Dr. Charles L. Hughes. He's the director of the Memphis Center at Rhodes College, where he designs courses and programs. Some of his recent course offerings include The History of Memphis, Beale Street, The Past, Present, and Future, Elvis Presley and America, and The Music of the American South. You can pick up his acclaimed first book on Amazon, Country Soul, Making Music and Making Race in the American South, which was named one of the best music books of 2015 by Rolling Stone and one of the uh, Slate's Overlook books of 2015. He's a voter for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He participates in the Nashville Scenes year-end country music poll. Welcome, Professor Hughes. Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be back. Hey, Charles, as our undeducated guest, tell us something about yourself and your relationship to the dead. It's interesting. I I grew up uh, as a kid being exposed to the Grateful Dead's music because I had family members who were big fans. I don't know that any of them would have qualified as deadheads, uh, although actually, now I take that back. I think at least one of them would have identified that way and still does. Uh, but I, the music was kind of in the in the mix for me from when I was a kid. But I actually only really returned to the music of the Grateful Dead and kind of started listening to to it really significantly in basically in the last year or so. And so the timing of this documentary and of kind of getting a chance to learn more about a band that I was just starting to really listen to heavily uh, was really kind of incredible. So the Grateful Dead have always been around me musically, um, but I've only really started listening to them heavily in the last year or so, and through this documentary, um, getting a chance to, to think about them more than I ever have. So what are, what are some of the top things that struck you from Act 5? Well, the thing that really struck me the most of all about, about Act 5, beyond the fact that like the rest of the documentary, I thought it was just so wonderfully presented and so incredibly structured. You know, I think they made a really good choice in not trying to give us a comprehensive blow-by-blow blow, blow history, but instead, you know, focused on these themes and made each chapter feel like its own little movie that was a part of a bigger series. Um, and they definitely did that in Act 5. And the thing that really struck me is that beyond getting a chance to really dig into the way that the sort of deadhead culture and the idea of the deadhead developed, was that on the one hand, it called back, the deadhead, uh, the emergence of deadheads called back to, you know, things like the beatniks, or uh, as they say in this episode, hopping railroads and that kind of romance of America, um, which the, the film also does a good job in kind of uh, troubling <laughs> that romance, including around the Grateful Dead. But on the other hand, it also really demonstrated that as much as we associate the Grateful Dead with the 60s or with the past, right, or as much as they get kind of caricatured or celebrated as something of a, of a kind of out of time or, or past uh, thing, they really pointed the way towards a lot of the way that not only the music business works today with, as Dennis points out in the episode, with taping and, and other things and the way that internet culture has made that sharing possible, but also in terms of the way fan cultures and kind of geek culture works. You know, the Deadheads 
learning from each other and becoming part of a community that was not at that time accepted or necessarily uh, widely understood. It was just really wonderful to note that uh, the Grateful Dead and the Deadheads, even as complicated as, as it all could be, are really sort of presaging a lot of things that we nowadays think of as commonplace in, in music and in popular culture. I just thought that was that was so striking. I'd have to agree with you there. Um, the is sort of culture formation um, in reaction to what Garcia called the new lame America, the right. 1980s. Oh. <laughs> Reaganism and all that. And kind of putting that, you know, again, to think of the way that, and as, as uh, I know I keep, I keep citing our other guests here, uh, but as, as Dennis points out in the episode, you know, that Reagan really ran against the 60s is what is the words that he uses, and that's absolutely right. And as a historian, um, thinking about the way in which pop culture of the 80s in a lot of ways was reacting to that Reagan reaction, but thinking of the Grateful Dead as being in some way a product of as much of the 80s as of the 60s, right? That you see this culture developing and this sense of community and, you know, the reaction against Reagan's America. And that's so structures. And you have at the same time the band having this really, really profitable and successful run and doing some of their, their best and most compelling music. Um, it's really interesting to think of the way this documentary makes a good case that the dead are just as much a product of the 80s as, as kind of of the 60s in some way. Well, they certainly were bigger uh, in the 80s and then in the 90s than they, than they were in the 60s. And even when I got on the bus, I, I, my first shows were in uh, early 1978. And right. as was pointed out in the film, this was still very much an underground uh, phenomenon at that point. There were there weren't all that many of us. It seemed um, we could still fill a stadium now and again, but yeah, we also yeah. saw a lot of shows in some pretty small hockey rinks in some pretty way well out of the way places, and it felt like uh, just us, just us against the world. Yeah. Well, one of my top moments of this episode was obviously seeing the young Dennis McNally in his hair. That was incredible. Uh, the introduction, because I think you guys are all talking about all this stuff that happened in the 80s and then blowing up. Dennis, is it your fault being their publicist that they got so big in the 80s or what? <laughs> no, not my fault. Uh, you know, my my uh, my main contribution is a. Uh, as the publicist was to answer the phone a lot more systematically than uh, than my predecessor had, uh, but I, you know, it's certainly true. I, I, in listening to what we were just saying, I have a vivid memory of um, there was a very good article um, uh, in 1972 in Playboy called "Grateful Dead: I Have Known" by Ed McClanahan, who was part of Kizzy's circle at Palo Alto, and it's about the Grateful Dead. In 1965, wonderful piece uh, if you if you haven't read it. And uh, but I remember the guy who was who was sort of my mentor in deadheadness because this, this was the year of my first show, um, who had been a deadhead already for three or four years, um, was furious with this article because he was worried that it was going to blow everybody's cover. That that uh, you know he, he was very clear uh, in '72 that we really were a very small, um, you know, I mean. I, Sort of lots of people knew who the Grateful Dead were, but but it was it was not a a, a big deal. Um, and even when I became publicist in 1984, that year we played three theaters. Uh, we played the, the 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 Fox in Atlanta. Uh, we played Berkeley Community Theater, and I'm forgetting, but there's another one. So um, 
the Grateful, you know, the Grateful Dead took off. But the the reason, uh, at least I argue in the book, and 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 I think it's true, um, is what you were just saying, which is simply uh, there's there's right Ronald Reagan, there's uh, the era uh, where you know greed is good, where where um, uh, you know there's a, he's using. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which is so not you know, so inappropriate, but then what else is new? Um, as a theme song, um, treating it as a you know a rah rah patriotism song, which it isn't uh, in that way, uh, not that kind of patriotism. And uh, is it this era of of excess and greed and and you know the, the kind of friends they had, and you know what what could be more appropriate than to have um, you know tens of thousands of deadheads, uh, you know, multiply like mushrooms all over the place uh, because uh, they, because it was the only game left in town, uh, as Garcia put it. It was, you know, it was right the, the, rails. the last yeah. adventure was to, you know, was to go follow the Grateful Dead and, and see a, a, a different America, and to quote also from the movie Steve Silverman, who's, who's uh, very, very eloquent on the subject. Uh, in Grill Marcus's phrase, the old weird America, the, the America of of um, the old folk songs, uh, the material that, that Dylan and, and Jerry learned from in the Harry Smith anthology, um, it's a somewhat more authentic America than, than the one we have now, for starters. So, which is you know sort of a general comment that the, the Grateful Dead, I think, um, will uh, will endure uh, just because. Uh, they represent some uh, very old traditional stuff that, that, but that boils down to authenticity and 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 solidity in a way that so little of our, our popular culture does today. And I think that's a really great point too about you know in the past couple of years there has been another kind of resurgence of interest in the music of the Grateful Dead at least right in terms of. There was the huge tribute album that uh, the guy from The National produced. Um, there was, you know, Boney Vare, Justin Vernon up at his music festival did a uh, an evening with various guests of the music of the Grateful Dead. There are some a lot of tribute bands and also tribute projects, which isn't new. But it's interesting to think about how I wonder if part of the return to the Grateful Dead in the last couple of years and this documentary in some ways that you know, we're now 30 years again, and we are in a new, we're in a new moment in America, and, and not a particularly friendly one. Um, and I wonder if, for a new generation, is registering something in the sound, um, in particular, you know, that a lot of the folks who were young and are not necessarily, uh, would not necessarily have been around during the period to go to shows, uh, but they have the records, and we have the records and the memories and that kind of thing. And I wonder, I, I hadn't thought of that before, but I wonder if that's why we're seeing another moment of interest is because of that very thing uh, that, you know, we're now in another moment where America seems to be reacting. Um, and maybe that's partly explains why the, the, the dead seems to be having another <laughs> another moment, you know? Well, but, I think I, I, I think the rise of of Reaganism, uh, you know, starting in one of my favorite parts in the movie is the inclusion of Reagan's speech, uh, yeah. where he is uh, basically, uh, you know, giving the 
opposite version of the reality of an acid test. And, oh, my God, they are watching two movies at the same time. <laughs> this is crazy. And, of course, you know, he rode that uh, to, to uh, the governorship and, you know, 15 years later to uh, uh, the presidency. You know, and so much of America is a backlash against one thing or, or another. And let's face it, the last uh, 15 or so years, uh, you know, we've been uh, inundated with things like uh, Kardashians and reality television, which is not very real. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me that, uh, you know, we have now um, gotten a second dose of this backlash and maybe even worse than the one we experienced in the 80s. And so the rise of uh, the dead and the interest, as Charles, as you just put, uh, is is apropos. Uh, in fact, I just read an article here about 10, 15 minutes ago that uh, Dead and Company set a attendance record yep. at Wrigley Field this weekend, this last weekend. So I, I think the rise is coming. And I think there's a couple of things going on there, too. And one of them is just that the music will does and will stand the test of time. There was something new created. Um, something new was waiting to be born. It was born. And, and that's just great stuff. I, I liken this, the dead at their best, to, to classical music in some ways, in the sense that it's going to last a long time in my, in my uh, guesstimation. Uh, the other thing that's going on, too, though, is it's the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love, and it is a moment when we, a lot of us, are looking back to those values because, boy, we need them more now than ever. So there yeah. is a, there is an explicit look back. For example, at High Sierra, on, I think page one of the, of the program this year was, hey, it's the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love of Monterey Pop. Um, let's, we need peace and love. Let's manifest that this weekend with each other and bring that out into the world. It was quite explicit. Um, and along with that came, I think, four uh, at least explicitly Grateful Dead related things on stage. They celebrated the 40th anniversary of uh, the release of Terrapin Station with a, with a play shop where people, Jay Blakesburg led a discussion of the album and then some guests played the album, you know, start to finish. There was the Grateful Bluegrass Ball, which was the Jeff Austin band and the uh, running, uh, the traveling McCurries together playing Grateful Dead bluegrass style. And Keller Williams led a gospel style celebration yeah. of Grateful Dead music. Huh. And, and there was... Um, there were some other scatterings as well. Um, so this, I, these are all of a piece, I think. Um, and, I, and, and again, none too soon. We, we need this right now. Yeah, so like uh, episode five, which, uh, you know, talks so much about the deadheads themselves, uh, maybe we're seeing a resurgence. So what, what do you think, Dennis? I, well, I recently did an essay about the... Uh, Summer of Love um, for the uh, the De Young Museum's uh, show, their catalog, and I call uh, the the title of it was uh, not past at all, which comes from William Faulkner's uh, famous line about the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. Um, the fact is that the issues that that the Summer of Love, uh, and which the Grateful Dead, in many ways, came to uh, represent or embody, manifest something. Uh, the issues that the Summer of Love, again, th these weren't original to, some, to 1967, but the, what happened in the Haight-Ashbury heightened uh, awareness of them. And I'm talking about things like uh, challenging the idea of conventional masculinity and macho-ness, 
the whole idea of the gentle hippie, which led to feminism and it led to gay liberation and it led to a million things. Uh, the relationship to the environment, uh, the relationship to Asian um, uh, religion and spiritual tradition, to natural food, for instance, which literally began in the Haight-Ashbury. All those things are very much part of our, our current lives, or some people's current lives, and certainly the conflict between the majority of America uh, which, uh, and, and the minority that, whose president uh, is you know, sitting – well, he's not at the White House this week. Um, he's getting uh, new is, orders is, this week, so. <laughs> yeah, he's getting, yeah, exactly. He's over meeting with his, uh, with his handler the puppet um, master, in, uh, in, uh, in Hamburg, I guess it is. Um, but the, you know, the fact is that, that – Sacred all ground these, if you're a Beatles fan. I can't believe Hamburg, but I'm sorry. There is that, too. <laughs> uh, but the, the point is that, that none of this stuff's gone away. Uh, so that it, it isn't it isn't just a matter of nostalgia or or, or you know sentimentality. Um, the way people have reacted in the city of San Francisco in particular, which was sort of ground zero, um, uh, has not just been uh, old folks uh, going on. You know, oh, there were better days back then, by Taki. Um, <laughs> in in fact. Um, I, I've, uh, you know, I, I curated this photo show, uh, which was about the roots of the Summer of Love at the uh, California Historical Society, uh, which I commend to anybody to go see. It's, it's there till Labor Day. And the fact is that, that uh, people come in, there's, there's quite as many uh, young people as, uh, as, as people who were there the first time around. And it, and it is because of those values, just as... Um, from all reports, the audiences at Dead End Company yes, or Fairdewell or whatever are, again, this incredible span of, uh, of age groups, just the way Grateful Dead shows always were. Um, and you have plenty of just as wigged out deadheads as you could want who are 19 and wouldn't have a clue, um, uh, you know, uh, what the Grateful Dead looked like uh, in 1995 because they weren't there. You know, and I'm always brought back to something Mickey Hart said at the um, memorial for Jerry Garcia soon after uh, Jerry passed. He said something, you know, like Jerry helped show us the way here, but we're no dummies. We know what to do. And I think that the deadheads themselves, which is Act 5 is about, have been carrying this thing into the future um, quite, quite well. You know, it's all too clear we're on our own. And, and well, we're, we're 22 years on from Jerry's passing, and it's still going strong. And I think I think to, to, to echo that a little bit, too, another moment that I really love in Episode 5, but I also love throughout the entire film, is that, you know, there's the moment where, um, where uh, Nick Palmgarten and Al Franken both talk about the musical differences and how Deadheads really kind of understood the music in these very deep ways. Oh, the Althea, um, the Althea The Althea thing, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and Steve Silverman also with his discussion of how uh, drums in space used to kind of condense into a ballad with Garcia, right? That this is something I think that's really, to this day, doesn't get enough credit. But these sort of fan communities are often the first draft of the way we understand these great artists, right? Uh, fans, even fans like Deadheads, don't often get enough credit in, in helping us to understand before before anybody else might see it, you know? And I think that the championing of the music throughout this episode and throughout this documentary is so really wonderful, right? That like 
the, the Grateful Dead as a cultural phenomenon and Deadheads as a cultural phenomenon and all the other context around it, in every episode, and particularly I noticed in this fifth one with those wonderful moments, it all comes back to this really rich and powerful music. And so often, you know, you mentioned my class about Elvis Presley. I think with Elvis, I think with a lot of other sort of iconic musicians, it's often difficult to, to get down to the fact that they, if nothing else, were incredibly brilliant musicians, you know, and created stuff that created the, the world around them, right? And I love how you have this very clear indication throughout the episode and throughout the documentary of that what, you know, there were deadheads who came for the scene and there were, of course, problems that are gone into more in episode six, I guess, about when it got too big. But there is at the heart of this, this love of this band's music and an understanding of, of their genius. And I think that's a really important thing too. And another reason why their music continues to work for newer generations. I mean, I myself, I was too young to go to Grateful Dead shows when they were touring. Um, and the idea that it would still resonate with me and kind of come back to me now in this very powerful way is a tribute to something that I think a lot of people often forget, not anybody on this, uh, on this round table, uh, but I think a lot of people often forget that if nothing else, they just produced incredibly powerful music that resonated with so many people. It starts with the songs. It has to start with the songs and those songs will stick around. I mean, they've been with us for 50 years now and uh, they will continue on into the future. I remember being in college and having an impassioned discussion with someone who said, I really love music, but I don't love the Grateful Dead. I don't like them at all. And uh, later on that night, I was in Glens Falls, New York, and the band was halfway, th half the band was playing Scarlet, the other half was playing Fire. It was this amazing amalgam <laughs> of improv. And I just started laughing out loud thinking of this thought, you say you like music and you don't like the Grateful Dead? I don't know that you know how to listen. You know. Before we wrap, this is Peter. Before we wrap the first part up, we got a few more minutes here with uh, Professor Charles L. Hughes. I want to, Charles, if you want to, while Dennis is still here and you guys are talking, is there anything about the entire documentary or we've talked about some specifics in Deadheads? We've had Steve Silverman on the show, Professor Rebecca Adams, who is a sociologist who studied Deadheads. Uh, is there anything overall about the documentary you know you'd like to bring up now that maybe we could talk about uh, with Dennis? Sure. Well. One of the things that I think is so powerful about this documentary and makes it different and important, to kind of refer back to something Dennis said before about how it's not it's not just about sentimentality and nostalgia for people looking back at the summer of love. You know, I really I really valued that this documentary didn't flinch at some of the complexities and some of the not just in terms of the story ultimately of what happened to Jerry Garcia and with the Grateful Dead. But, uh, you know, in this episode and throughout, I was really um, pleased that they talked about in this episode, uh, Palmgarten, I think, refers to the sense of menace that sometimes surrounded, you know, <laughs> the scene. And I, I really valued that. And I guess actually, the, if I could ask Dennis, you know, obviously later on, um, you know, the, the band and you had to deal with, with this very directly that's talked about in episode six. So I don't know if we're supposed to hold off on that. But, um, you know, what was what was your response as this, particularly as the scene got bigger or as more folks started to show up? I mean, you must have recognized that that there were these kind of complexities within the community. Did you or did the band kind of think about that or was, you know, how did that work for you being on the inside of this? Because from an outsider's perspective, it's such a rich and complicated uh, story. Well, the the band, you know, 
tried not to think about it for the simple reason that that uh, and, and Jerry most notably, um, as anti you know as incredibly anti-authoritarian um, as they were, um, the I you know Jerry spent his entire life trying to deny responsibility. So he'd say things like, and and largely they're true. Um, we didn't create deadheads, deadheads created themselves, which is more mm. or less true. Mm-hmm. Although mm-hmm. they did many things that, that positively uh, contributed to the, you know, so the development and the growth of, 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 uh, of deadheads. Uh, but, you know, it, Amir does it in sharp, uh, you know, sharp relief when he has Barlow um, sitting there, um, you know, chuckling about the idea of the band telling, you know, anybody to do anything. As I am uh, voiceover reading the the letter that that, uh, that went out um, from Indianapolis, now uh, of course, frankly, my reaction uh, was an expletive uh, filled commentary on the fact that it was very easy for Barlow to say that since he wasn't on the road dealing with the reality, um, and, and right. we were seriously, and yeah. we were the ones who we were the on ones a daily in basis, watching yeah. on a daily basis and watching ten thousand people come over a fence. Yeah. Uh, and, and with with Irvine many of the Meadows. people on the inside helping to break the fence, that's disturbing. Uh, and 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 uh, the the uh, the bus ride um, out of uh, uh, the uh, uh, facility that night uh, with with people like literally walking in front of the you know deliberately walking in front of the bus was out of out of you know a zombie movie. It was it was really really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact is that, you know, it's, there's a thing called the random asshole effect, which is that if you have a million people, yeah. you have a certain proportion of people who are going to be assholes. Yeah. And they're not going to, you know. Statistics. And the, the problem yeah. with, with The Grateful Dead after 1987 was to that point, um, becoming a deadhead was an organic process. It was almost always, uh, you know, what we in Zen call one hand to one hand. It was almost always a person that you met, sometimes a sibling, sometimes a friend, who said, "Oh no, you 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 gotta you know you gotta check this out." And maybe they'd give you a tape, and 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 you know you'd listen to it, and you know, and if you were part of the, the you know the ninety percent that wanted their music predictable, then they didn't register. But for those you know, to quote Jerry, you know, deadheads are like people who like licorice. Not everybody likes licorice, but the people who like licorice really like licorice. We were a niche, a big niche, a damn big niche by the end, but still only a niche. Um, and so, you know, it was a it was a human relationship, and implicitly, whether people even realized it or not, in the process of becoming a deadhead, you got acculturated, and you learned manners, mm-hmm. and you, you know, learned how to keep it a reasonably low profile um, and a reasonably respectful profile with each other. After 1987, you had thousands of people who heard a hit on the radio, went down to the show, you know, say, oh, okay, I want to hear that band. They go down, they can't buy tickets because there aren't any. It's already sold out. Uh, they get there, but they find the most outrageous party of their lives in the yeah, parking lot. Yeah, yeah. And they become part of that scene, which, you know, before 1987, Maybe if I, you know you've got a thousand people without tickets, we can function with that. But after that, there are times when you have five thousand people without tickets, and that is called, you know, flooding an ecosystem, overloading the ecosystem, overpopulating it, 
and ultimately destroying it. So that from 87 to 95, every show we did that didn't have some hassle uh, with that overpopulation um, was a triumph. And, and of course, the wheels pretty much entirely came off. It, in some ways, in completely bizarre and random ways, like people getting hit by lightning uh, or, huh. or the roof caving in at a campground 20 miles from the venue, uh, but on the last tour, you know, we called it the tour from hell, and it certainly was. Uh, and, and some of that was deadhead, you know, or, or you know, sort of mob instinct. Um, uh, and and some of it, as I say, was just like, you know, excuse me, we're you know, the Grateful Dead are responsible for the fact that people in the parking lot get hit by lightning. Not so much. Uh, but you know, my take in the middle of it was simply, you know, we had ducked and danced for 29 and a half years and we we missed major hassles uh, of this sort in, in particular what happened in at, in uh, uh, Deer Creek um, and and you know we collected all of our used you know bad karma in one tour mm. and it was yeah. sure enough one miserable son of a bitch of a tour and if I could just comment on the um, the earlier, the pre-87 portion of what Dennis was talking about, I think um, the hand, the one hand to one hand thing, becoming a deadhead wasn't just about be getting the music. For a lot of folks, you also got handed a copy of On the Road, and you also mm -hmm. got handed a copy of um, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and you, yeah. you know, you yeah. were brought into a... a a culture or, or educated about a history and that history was still going. I mean, if you look at the Egypt thing, you know, you see Kesey climbing the pyramids with, with the band. Um, so in a way, the old weird America that Garcia and company were looking back to Garcia, Kesey and company have now become part of that old weird America. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, the, um, and it's really? something, it's a, just a, th a point I think that was sort of made in, in Act 5 um, mm -hmm. with, with the deadheads and, and the acculturation before the wheels came off the bus, at least. I, I might add, quite literally, the guy who turned me on to the Grateful Dead was the guy who told me one night, I was sort of talking out loud about my possible doctoral dissertation, and I said, well, maybe I'll do something on the beats. And he's the guy who said, now nah, you should do Kerouac. His papers are at Columbia, and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. All of which came true. So, you know, the lineage is, I mean, and, and certainly why I became the Grateful Dead's biographer is because Jerry felt that Jack Kerouac was the most important for, formative influence of his young life. So it does all connect. And most, a lot of deadheads are very clear on all that. Well, it's a, it's a deep pool that, uh, you know, you first stick your toe in and then wade in a little bit and, and then you just get further and further sucked in. <laughs> Otherwise, I was getting sucked under. <laughs> There's that, too. And speaking of that, Christian, I think we may have done a great job uh, sucking in our friend, uh, uh, Dr. Professor Charles L. Hughes. Charles, so, you know, we want to wrap here. We're going to spend the last part of the show here where Christian's going to talk a little bit with uh, Dennis one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, I want to ask you before you go, though, is there anything you're going to take away from this experience kind of in, you know, jumping in with this four-hour documentary and <laughs> learning about the dead? 
Um, I'm certainly going to take take you know some pathways out of it and you know kind of explore some other things and and learn more um and also go back to the records you know and go back to uh exploring the music and thinking of this you know this documentary is such a powerful way not only to understand the story of the grateful dead but as we've been talking about so many of the things that surround and intersect with that so i've actually thought a lot about this documentary and this conversation's got me thinking new ways and i'm just really really grateful that it exists. And I also just want to, you know, give, give Dennis a shout out for all the work that you've done over the years to help make this happen, both with the band and also the, the memory and understanding of the Grateful Dead is, is really, really crucial. So thank you for that. And, and thank you all for letting me be a part of the conversation. Well, Charles, we'll have to get you to uh, get some tapes to you. So you have various <laughs> versions of various songs. That's right. Then, I got to get in the Althea yes, thing. Yes, yes that's that right. And, and then you must send us a picture when you get your first tie-dye shirt. Uh, here's okay. what we can do. do you can listen to Tim Lynch every Wednesday night as he presents KPFA's Dead to the That's World right. and KPFA.org. Tim is one of go. the preeminent uh, folks in the world who knows so much about Live Dead. We <laughs> want to thank Tim as our guest host. Tim was the uh, MC up at High Sierra. He came down, jumped here for Act 5. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. And folks, next week we're going to have Amir himself here on Act 6. And uh, before we go, and we're going to let Christian take it away with Dennis McNally. Thank you all for listening. And now, Christian, take it away. All right, so let's get on to Act 2 of our interview uh, with very special, dedicated guest, Dennis McNally. Uh, first, Dennis, let's talk about your excellent book, Desolate Angel, Jack Kerouac, The Beat Generation in America. The, the book is a biography about a misunderstood artist and their moment, the, the precursors to the counterculture of the 1960s, the, maybe even the fountainhead, uh, I would say. Um, Jack and On the Road was always of great interest to both you and to Garcia. In fact, it's a big part of your induction to the to the Grateful Dead. But let's talk about your introduction and your continued love of the subject. Uh, when did you first read On the Road, and how did you digest it then, and how did it grow to be such a big portion of your life? Well, I first read it in high school. I was fascinated by it, and I enjoyed it, but it, it, you know, it, it didn't dawn on me that it was the beginning of my adult intellectual life. Right um, at the time, yeah. And then, and then, I, you know, but I it still spoke to you in high school. You still like so oh, many absolutely. people went, "Wow, there's a different way to live." Especially, you're you're a little bit older than I am, and so at that particular time. Uh, you know, it, it, mu it must have said, wow, this is just not how regular people live, right? Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I was a, a military family, so I started out from a principle, uh, from a, an understanding, just the sheer mobility of my early life and uh, my life in general. Um, I always felt outside, uh, you know, the fairly the conventional uh Lifestyle, not not in any flamboyant way, but I I, I could see clearly that that uh, there were many values, uh, things like Christianity and whatnot that, that, that didn't particularly uh, you know resonate for me. I felt a great affinity to on the road and was interested in history from having a wonderful teacher in high school and then a great department in college, and got to graduate school in history. And uh, as I say, um, 
one night I was literally trying to think of a dissertation topic specifically and was sort of meandering around and thinking, oh, the, the beats, that would be interesting and that's recent and that's you know something I really felt a connection to. And my friend, um, Chris, uh, said to me literally, um, his papers are, are you know, his letter, all of his papers, he was wrong about that. <laughs> that was the only thing he was wrong about. All of his papers are at Columbia and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. Um, all of those guys, I might add, who were also deadheads and also uh, are, are still among my closest friends. Mm. Uh, and and on the practical level, I was a broke. That's kind of redundant to say a broke graduate student. I've never known <laughs> a wealthy one. Yes, it uh, is redundant. <laughs> uh, so I was this broke graduate student, and the idea that I had a free place to stay in, you know, on the subway in Manhattan uh, or the Bronx, close enough, was you know gold. Coincidentally, my parents had just moved 20 miles from Lowell, Massachusetts, where Kerouac came from. So the universe was kind of lining up to say, uh, maybe Kerouac should hit. pay attention. And then, to this. Right. Uh, you know, he had died three years before the, this conversation was in early '72, and uh, he, uh, Kerouac, had died in '69. And to that point, there was no bio. One of the reasons uh, that I went forward with it was that uh, there weren't any biographies of Kerouac at the time. And uh, so that it would clearly improve my chances of publishing. I might add that a year after I started, uh, the first one came out, and I opened it in a panic sweat, thinking, oh, God, you know, have I just wasted a year of my life researching this? And, and uh, you know, the job is done, and I'm, you know, there's nothing, nothing further to be done. On a combination of ego and whatever, very quickly, uh, reading that first biography, I said, nah, you know, I can do something that's at least different um, and a very different approach because, again, I was a historian. I wasn't a literature guy, uh, right. and I, 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 didn't, I didn't write my book. I, I thought that, that you could understand the history of his times through his life, mm-hmm. um, and it's, a, it's called Life and Times Biography, and, yeah. and that's what I was after, and that's what I did. Yeah, and so – you then send uh, two copies to uh, the famous P.O. Box 1073 uh, because you saw the Dead Freaks Unite message on the back of the 71 album, uh, Grateful Dead, or the, the Skull and Roses album. Uh, what, what made you decide to do that? Well, it was the only – I didn't have a clue how else to, to get the Grateful Dead were the only rock and roll band in the world with an unlisted phone number, um, you know. Uh, they didn't hide behind a management firm that was that you know at least in the business was known. Uh, you had to know their number, and I I didn't know it. Um, I had no idea of how to get a hold of them, um, and so I uh, I sent I sent a book to to Jerry and a book to Hunter, um, and then eventually wrote an article for the uh, San Francisco Chronicle of uh, the Sunday Magazine there. Uh, right at the time the Grateful Dead were playing the, the long run at the Warfield Theater in the fall of 80. And to prepare that, I had interviewed Bill Graham, who did have a listed number, and who was always willing to talk about the deadheads. Mm-hmm. And his assistant, uh, Jan Simmons, who later was the Grateful Dead tour ma- assistant tour manager, um, uh, Jan, when I came out of the interview, Jan, uh, Jan said, well, you know, if you're going to do something on the deadheads, you really should talk to Eileen Law. And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. She said, well, here's her number. And that's how I got the Grateful Dead office number. And I hooked up with – I connected with Eileen, which eventually led, led me to meeting Jerry. And when I met Jerry, I 
I think that was at the Halloween yeah. show in 1980, right? It was uh, no uh, specifically. I met him um, early in the run at the Warfield. They were plotting the Halloween the the uh, the video, which was a broadcast to theaters. You know, this was before cable TV even, much yeah. less the internet. Um, and uh, they were brought, you know, the planet. And right now I'm going blank on what it was called, but it was. Oh, it was ended called up Dead being, Ahead. Dead Ahead. Dead Ahead. So that was the Halloween show of 1980. Mm -hmm. And because they were doing the three sets with the with the acoustic set, uh, there was a lot of space to fill. So they got Franken and Davis in to do skits based on mm -hmm. uh, the Jerry's, you know, the the spoof of Jerry Lewis's telethon, uh, Jerry's Kid. Uh, except that this kid would be, you know, uh, uh, Jerry's kid as in raise money to get this guy a hit of acid and and uh, a bus ticket to the next gig. And uh, this, this, is, this, gig. Is, this is the current uh, senator of Minnesota, right? Uh, yes, uh, one of them. Uh, <laughs> that is one of the writers, yes, yeah, Tom yeah. Davis. And so Tom Franken. Davis has passed, but uh, yes. But um, uh, yeah. poor, yes, uh, God bless his soul. Um, and uh, yes, uh, I'm very proud that, uh, you know, my my deadhead buddy uh, is is uh, one of the the uh, two or three senators um, uh, American senators I actually trust, um, and Al. Um, so they you know they wrote these wonderful skits and and long story short I met Jerry in that and the, they were they were interviewing deadheads for for stories for material uh, and they were also it was an audition to be the totemic Jerry's kid and they eventually picked a guy named. Tumbleweed, um, and uh, but uh, and they end up not using him, not flying him to, to New York for whatever reason. Uh, but I, it, it led to my, my meeting Jerry, and after about one minute, um, I reasonably, diplomatically, and and sophisticatedly and slyly inserted the fact that I had written a book about Kerouac and had sent it to him, and had he gotten it. To which he said, and he hot, literally hopped out of the chair and ran across the room and took my hand and said, "That's a wonderful biography and a lot of other really flattering things." Uh -huh. And although I think I did a good job, the real reason he reacted that way was because of the importance that he had for that Kerouac had for him. Mm -hmm. uh, Kerouac was his mentor. Um, yeah. Remember, he was a, a kid going to art school in North Beach, the beat neighborhood of San Francisco in 1958, when mm -hmm. the book is on the uh, bestseller list. It's a current hot book, and it changed his life. Yeah, and uh, apparently that meeting changed your life because you very sure. quickly <laughs> become the historian of the band. How, how did that happen? I could, go, you know, I could turn it into an hour story, and then, you know, we don't have that much time. Context, all, but. Exactly, in a different context, I would. But it, it suffices to say that about two months later, I got a phone call from Alan Trist, who was who was yeah. uh, mm -hmm. one of who ran Einstein Music Publishing, and he and Rock Scully were going to the Warfield um, to uh, to. They were still settling from the shows, which was two months later. Typical, um, and uh, and they invited they. Told me to come down and meet them there, and I and I did. And uh, and Alan turned to me and, and said, "Jerry says, why don't you do us? Which is to say, why don't you write a book about the Grateful Dead?" To which I replied, "Gee, that sounds like a good idea." And then I went home and got really drunk. <laughs> it was, and then, you know, it yeah, was something I've been dreaming about for seven years.
Uh, it's that crazy. It's fate. Uh, it was just meant to be. So by 1984, you're running publicity. And in, in 1985, you married our one of our earlier guests on uh, on this podcast, uh, Susanna mm -hmm. Millman. And you both have a grateful daughter, Season. And then mm -hmm. you went to work. Now, in the film, you came in at a time when the dead are about to go big time after after a 20-plus year career in the underground and also when deadheads themselves become a focus for the media uh, and you talk about that in the film now now jerry told you the the one job you had was first don't suck up to the press and i think that was it i think that's all he told you but how about role yeah. reversal because that's what really happened the media started sucking up to you guys right yeah um my job ended up being the screener. You know, when I when I was first hired as the publicist, and I, I said, you know, I, I really should go out on the road with the band, which had not happened before. And the crew immediately, because the crew viewed every person uh, in the, the traveling party that that wasn't a member of the crew uh, as you know stealing money from the mouths of their children. Um, and and uh, I said, look, you're going to get all this media attention wherever you go. TV and and in particular TV uh, because that's the most sort of powerful, but also photographers, and somebody should be dealing with it. And you don't you don't trust the local promoter because they don't care uh, how it gets done. Um, and my job is is to make all that happen and ha happen invisibly so that it doesn't impinge on what you guys are doing. And the van said, "Yeah, you're right." And uh, so that's that's why I was there. Uh, and from from then on, my job was not because uh, because as I as I said, the crew had said, "But we've already sold the tickets. What do we need to publish this for?" And the answer was to improve the quality of the coverage, and to simply channel all that that interest into something approaching coherence. And that's what I did for the next you know umpteen years. Yeah, I think uh, for like twenty five years total. So so. Um, in 1995, as uh, we know, uh, as the film ends with Jerry's death, but the bus continues. Uh, I personally remember that day well, and, and I thought it was all over. I thought uh, that was it. And here we are 22 years later, and it's thriving um, and probably will forever. So let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. You continued to work directly with, uh, and I'm going to use this word, organism, until 2004. Uh, talk about those years and what it was like keeping the spirit alive. Well, yeah, I, I, in particular, the first couple of years um, after Jerry died, I, I, uh, I didn't even think about I had set, you know, I'd started the book and obviously discovered that I couldn't do it and be publicist simultaneously. It was impossible. Mm. I mean, being publicist is a 60-hour-a-week job. Yeah, the book is Long Strange Trip, uh, we'll get, and we'll get to that in a second, but go ahead. And so in 1997, I, I, I went on halftime and, and started working on the book. But in those, those first two years, I just felt important to keep things going. Uh, as a as a solace to a devastated audience, um, and you know we 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 put out music and 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 the the dick picks served an incredible you know yeah. uh, mm -hmm. uh, as a bridge to the audience, and um, you know we just kept going, 
and there, there wasn't there wasn't any alternative. And you know, the, the further and slowly the the furthers and the 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 other ones and the you know whatever the various uh, incarnations Incarnation. started emerging because these guys weren't really ready to put up their instruments. And um, you know, it it just it just kept going. And once we got over the heartbreak, um, we had the music to hold on to. Uh, and you know, the Grateful Dead did two things: they created a synthesis of rock and jazz truly improvisatory rock that a certain niche of people love and they created they 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 embodied a community and and uh, you know the community endures as you say it thrives it's growing yeah it's still going so so let's talk uh, about the making of this production uh, the movie long strange trip by Amir Barlev uh, since you had been the official historian since first getting on the bus uh, and then acting as the publicist. So, but it took you to write the definitive book on the band, also called Long Strange Trip, published in 2002. Um, you separated, as you just said, uh, and sat down to do this. So um, other than the dearly departed Garcia, y you have the first interview in the film. You set the stage like a Shakespearean narrator, um, it's kind of like an elevator pitch for the dead. Did Amir come to you early to discuss the project? Uh, yeah, fairly early on. Um, you know, he he he's tried it years before, and he had a deal, and then it, he didn't have a deal, or he, I think I think his financing fell apart. You know, making a documentary is not so easy. Yeah. Um, eventually, when he resumed, and when he again got the deal again. Uh, I think I was one of the earlier people he came to uh, and asked me if I would serve. I mean, you know, I, I introduced him to people. I made, you know, I, I, I facilitated a little bit. Um, and, you know, would I do an interview? And, and I did. It, it, I did it over and over. <laughs> uh, Amir, uh, you know, Amir beat me. I mean, you know, he beat me into about five interviews because, uh, you know, and I had no clue that, let's put it this way, when I saw the movie, uh, at the premiere, uh, I was a little shocked at the the amount of uh, uh, vocal space I got, and I mean it was almost embarrassing. It seemed it, it, to me it seemed too much, but you know. No, no. Um, I, well, you know. You are the official it, historian. It, it, this is it, history. Well, and it's his it's his movie, and and I think he did a brilliant job. So you know, that's pretty much uh, uh, it. Um, there was a a moment when in the movie that they're talking about the sort of the illusion of fame, and um, I suddenly realized that uh, I was hearing "Dear Mr. Fantasy," and I thought, how, you know, how, how brilliant, how charming. And and then I realized that kind of where where the music and the, what's on the screen and the, what's what's being talked about were are all reflected each other beautifully. Uh, that happens throughout the movie. Yeah, over there. Yeah. Very fine film. Poetic. And, it, and, it was a documentary and a historical uh, documentary, but with this amazing amount of poetry that ran through the whole thing. That's that's what yep. keeps you going for four hours. I mean, all of a sudden, yep. boom, you're like, oh, my God, I just sat through four hours of a, of a movie. So what well, I was going to ask, you know, what were your favorite parts in the film? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously that. And and by the way, Dear Mr. Fantasy, that was one of my favorite covers they, they ever did. So well, what were some oh, of the yeah. other favorite parts that you uh, that you liked in the film? Well, that whole, you know, I did, I was I don't know if I even knew about it uh, at Bobby. 
you know, was like, I can't believe this is possible. And that was the the uh, the documentary that the Grateful Dead deliberately sabotaged, uh, <laughs> which was supposed yeah, to happen in, in, in England. Yeah. in England, when they do, you know, when they dosed they dosed the film crew, and yeah. you know, um, no more, you know, and they started navel gazing. Remarkable footage, um, and and a remarkable insight into who they were, and I, you know, I I'd never seen that stuff. I you know, I mean, I, I suppose I could have. If I'd wanted to pay for it myself, you know, hired a screening room and gone through those those films, the band probably would have let me look at them. But you know, anyway, I didn't. There was a, there was a limit to how much I was going to research. So that was that was that was that was brilliant. Sam Cutler's, you know, is was you know I love Sam and and Sam was being Sam. <laughs> we just we just spoke to Sam last week. Yeah, we we we, uh-huh. we we spent an hour with Sam. It's it's he's great. So, he's you know, just he, that, he's the captain of the pirate stuff. ship. I call him. And he's that's just right. Amazing. That's right. He was he was the right guy for the job when when you know at the time. Oh, um, I don't think I don't think the and, dead would have survived without him. Uh, it's just uh, not not at that time. Not not nineteen seventy. Yeah, so. he made a real contribution. So yeah, um, no, that's just it's just it's a matter of the whole. Um, yeah, I, um, yeah. I, I I just I thought Amir did a brilliant job. So the the film starts with uh, an introduction of Jerry and his love of of Frankenstein, uh, and the Frankenstein motif goes through the whole. Uh, the whole film, uh, and the funny thing is, is that you think it's going to be, you know, the scary Frankenstein, and it uh, it ends up being uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's one of his favorite movies that he saw. Now, you set up the interview, and I think that was one of Jerry's last interview, if not his last interview, that he did for um, was it AMC or or E's uh, 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 AMC. film? Yeah, um, uh, tell us about that. What happened is that because of his diabetes and his mood swings, it was obvious that he didn't want to be bothered. So for like the last year of his life, I didn't book any interviews. It was just there was no need, uh, you know, no formal need, and, and I, I wanted to cut him some slack. Uh, but then I got the request from AMC, and it's called The Movie That Changed Your Life. And I said, this one he'll want to do. And I went into his dressing room at the Warfield. Uh, he was doing a Garcia uh, band show. And... Um, and said, what do you think? And he immediately did the interview with me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, he wow. sat he down and he told me the whole, right. everything he said in the interview, he just went on about what an impre- impression that movie had made on him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I and so we ended up doing it um, in, I guess it would have been in Boston in uh, the fall of 94. It was, in, I think it was the Boston Hotel. So yeah, it was, uh, uh, and, and Amir did a, Again, a brilliant job of interpolating Frankenstein um, throughout, uh, from the original Frankenstein throughout, and then as well as the Abbott Costello version. Yeah, yeah. uh, Throughout as a a late motif, as they would say. Yeah, Uh, it's. uh, We talked a little bit about that earlier. It could be sometimes a little dangerous, and it always could be certainly fun. And there you have it at both ends of the spectrum. There, so, uh, Dennis. Finally, just I know you've got this California Historical Society on the road to the Summer of Love. Um, Can you give me just a second on uh, on what people can expect when they go? It's the historical background to the Summer of Love. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there's obviously pictures from Monterey Pop and, and, and The Hate and, and so forth. Um, uh, but um, uh, it goes back to uh, Howl and the, and the Beats. 
and it traces the arc of what happened in San Francisco in between 1955 and 1967, uh, and it gives you the context, and uh, and uh, it's it's quite pretty. I mean, the, the photography is brilliant. We found some wonderful photographers. I'll tell you about one picture, um, just as an example, and that was there's this marvelous. I wanted to get pictures of the the musicians uh, when they were folkies, and there's, you know, obviously I know the Grateful Dead photographers, so that was pretty easy. I was mm -hmm. looking for one for from your, for Yorma Kaukinen, and uh, called his wife, who I worked with, and um, and she immediately sent me these thumbnails, and this led me to seeing this marvelous picture of the first night that Janis Joplin sang as a folky. This is like 1963 uh -huh. in Northern California at the off stage, backed by Yorma. And she's wearing this basic black dress, and she's a little pudgy and a little, you know, kind of baby-faced. And it's nobody's ever seen this picture before. So there's some real, there's some really unique. I mean, there's pictures you've seen a million times, a, a few, uh, certainly familiar ones from the Bean, for instance. Uh, but then there's also stuff that's just extraordinary. And yeah. I, I went on a treasure hunt, and I, I think I can say I found some gold. Ah. Oh. I believe that's going to be your next book project, right? And that's what I'm working on now, yeah. A, a, a more in-depth version of that, but yeah. Well, we look forward to talking to you about that. All right, Diggers, if you are in San Francisco okay. between now and September 10th, make sure that you check this out. The uh, California Historical Society is located at 678 Mission Street, right in the heart of town. Don't tell me this town ain't got no heart. And, Diggers, you can pick up Jerry on Jerry, the unpublished Jerry Garcia interviews, on Highway 61, Music, Race, and the Evolution of Freedom, A Long Strange Trip, the book, The Inside Story, The Inside History of the Grateful Dead, and of course, Desolate Angel, Jack Kerouac, The Beat Generation, and America at your favorite retailer. And keep up with Dennis at his website, DennisMcNally.com. Dennis, thanks so much for spending time with us on Long Strange Podcast and part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. My pleasure. I thank you. Take care. Thanks, Nick. Get back, Chuck, and home.